Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, a holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come before you tonight and we take this time to, to open your word, I just pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds, Lord, and that you would speak to each individual here. That you'd help me to speak words accurately and correctly. Lord, that you could use what we hear tonight to strengthen us and establish us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's a statement, isn't it? That's a statement that throughout the Psalms and in all of Scripture, but in particular in the Psalms, you read of statements about who God is. Here he is our refuge. You hear in the Psalms that he is our strength, that he is our fortress, our shield, our rock, our deliverer, our stronghold. He's the horn of our salvation. We abide under his shadow. We are under the shadow of his wings. We are under the shelter of his wings. I mean, we all love Psalm 91, right? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide where? Under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, I, don't, I tried to picture how big that shadow is. And all I could see was myself as a little child standing in my dad's shadow as one who was much bigger than me. And actually, when you picture God being your father and casting his shadow and you being under his shadow, whatever we face is no match for our heavenly father. But the psalmist starts out by saying that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble or distress. And we all know that this life, everyone in this room has faced distress and trouble and tribulations, and you will again. Because Jesus said what in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't take any thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. Why? Sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. Every day's got challenges. Let's face it. Anybody in here not have a challenge this week? We all have a challenge. But God is our refuge. 
which means a shelter or a place to flee to. These are all statements that are made by who? They're made by the psalmist. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're making a statement about who God is to us. We don't make him be those things for us, do we? As, as we come to him and as we abide in him and as we, as his children, place our trust in him, he becomes these things for us. Every day, every moment, we have no confidence in ourselves, I hope. Because I want us all, and I want myself to see this more clearly, that God is all these things to us, all these things to me. He has set himself to be those things for his own. And when he makes those statements, it's about his character. It's about really who he is and how he is towards us. So we should draw great strength from that. I don't, you know, just looking at these things, I thought, you know, I'm pretty sure. In fact, I I don't have to think too many days past where these things maybe weren't quite as real to me as they should have been. You know, things come up in life, small or big, that tend to do what? Get you all shook up, get you all, uh, what's the term? Uh, Tore up. We didn't use that term where I come from, but that's a good one. You get tore up. There's things in life that want to tear you up. It didn't take too much for me this week in doing this study to have enough stuff heaped on me or whatever was going on. And don't ask my wife about the fit I had. (laughs) But But it wasn't pretty. And I thought, how can you preach a message like this? Well, the reason is, is he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. I just had a lapse of memory, I guess, about who he is and who he's in control of. But Psalm 46, he says in verse 2, he says, Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. When you think about a mountain, when you think about the earth, we tend to think that that is firm. We're solid, right? We're on solid ground here on the earth. The earth is, look how big the earth is. I've been to the Tetons. I've seen how big mountains can be. Wow. I've been to the seashore and seen raves roar and roll in. But he's saying, is he just talking about natural occurrences in life in the earth? He could be. But is he also talking about things in our world, governments, financial conditions? How about standards? You know, we see our standards in this world dropping all the time. That's commotion, isn't it? It's, it's a distress to nations. Things come up in this world. Jesus even predicted that there'd be natural occurrences like earthquakes in the world toward the end of the age. And those who had no trust in God, those who live in fear because everything around them is in commotion and and they don't know what to do and they don't know where to turn and they don't know God as their fortress or their strength or their shelter, they die from heart attacks. Their hearts fail them for fear. 
you and I should never fail for fear. Fear has been mentioned numerous times in the last bunch of messages. That fear is a very real thing, but it's still only an emotion, isn't it? It's fear captivates people. Fear causes people to do things they shouldn't normally do. But in verse 4, he goes on. And he gives us a promise that there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Why is that? God shall help her just at the break of dawn. God shall help her. In the midst of all this commotion that he's describing here, or she, in this psalm, Oh, in the midst of all this turmoil and distress, there is a place that is safe and secure and will not be moved. And God will help her. I like the thought that my security, my stability is not based on me. Because I'm going to fail me. I'm going to fail you. We all tend to, you know, if you count on somebody long enough, they're going to come up short, aren't they? Because they're just another human being with all kinds of issues that you're trying to deal with too. But to know that my security is not in me causing God to be things for me, but He is already there. And that is the key to me having faith in Him as the things He says He is. I don't make him be those by meeting any conditions that I, I, I somehow just do everything just right and now he becomes these things to me. I've already placed my trust in him. He now are, is those things. He's all of those things. So the grace that comes to us through his spirit is like a river. It's that which refreshes us. It's that which strengthens us. It's that which revives us. It's these things that God supplies to us and that as we look to Him, we receive that very thing that we need. And He says, just at the break of dawn. We've all been there. We've all been through some nights that just... Just at the break of dawn, just when you need the help, it's there. He says in verse 6, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. I don't know how you feel about the sovereignty of God, but I believe that he as creator of his creation is completely sovereign over it. That's why we don't fear when everything around us is in distress, when things around us seem to be collapsing or falling apart, things around us, even though they can be small, and you know what I'm talking about, little things tend to get to me, but they pile up. You know, the little things that cause you to be distressed in your mind until you begin to lose sight of really what's going on. And you allow those things to tear you up. But God is always in control. We know that. We should know that in this church 
if nowhere else, this church ought to know that God is sovereign. He says in verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. Now we're going to look at an example and an illustration, a story in the Bible here shortly where we see that God is able and willing and does make wars to cease, especially those against his people. He has the ability that if a weapon is formed against you, it will not prosper. He is able to take the spear and break it in two. What are we afraid of? You're all up there going, what are you afraid of? I'm, we're not afraid of nothing. Maybe you're afraid. I hope none of us in here are fearful ever. But we know distress comes. We know turmoil comes. But when things are overwhelming, when things appear even in your mind to be turned upside down, when things are threatening or distressing, the one who is with us is our refuge. And what does he tell us to do in verse 10? Be still and know that I am God. What a statement. What a statement. Calamity strikes all around you. Distress is facing you at every angle. Things are just all upside down. You're in your personal life or the world around you is all just tearing you up. You're in such distress. And what does he say to do? Be still and know that I am God. You're not God. You be still and know I am God. What a statement. Albert Barnes in his commentary says this about that phrase, be still. He says, the word used here means properly to cast down or to let fall to let hang down, then to be relaxed, slackened, especially the hands. It is also employed in a sense of not making any effort, not putting forth exertion, and then would express the idea of leaving matters with God or of being without anxiety about the issue. In Exodus 14, 13, remember, he said, Stand still and see the salvation of God. In this place, the word seems to be viewed as meaning that there was to be no anxiety. There was to be a calm, confiding, trustful state of mind in view of the displays of the divine presence and power. The mind was to be calm in view of the fact that God had interposed and had shown that he was able to defend his people when surrounded by dangers. We all need to learn sometimes to be still. Now, that doesn't mean give up. It doesn't mean you're quitting, does it? But we all know that there are times when, you know, you're going to have to get out the sword. You're going to take a stand. You're going to do some fighting. You're going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. You're going to do something. But when things are overwhelming, as we... See, in the Old Testament, the battles that were fought, some of them were so overwhelming to the people that they even said, we have no power. 
Does God ever give you something greater than you can handle? Well, he does, in a way. If he's allowing armies to come against his people that are far greater than they are, and they have no strength against them armies, what does he expect them to do? You stand still. You be still. You let me show you that I am your God. Be still and know that I am God. That is probably some of the hardest things we will ever do because when struggles and turmoils come, what do we want to do? Get in there and start finding an answer, a solution. We, we want to wrestle with the matter until we're so wore out that we forget that God is who He is. That He is the one who promises all things to us. And what does He say? Relax. Let down. You don't give up, but you be still and know that I am God. So sometimes when, we, when all seems to be overwhelming... We don't give up, but we in quiet confidence are to be still and know. What a place to be. Quiet confidence, which will be my title, quiet confidence. But, you know, the Israelites, when they were held captive for 400 years in Egypt, remember they were made slaves and the burdens were put on them so much that God didn't say, listen, I want you all in your back shed to start making some swords because that's how I'm getting you out of Egypt. You go, you start building up your armory because when the day comes, you're going to slash your way out of Egypt. That's not what they did, is it? They cried out to God, deliver us from these oppressors. And God sends a deliverer in Moses and he goes to the most powerful man on the earth at that time. Let my people go. No, I'm not letting your people go. Fine then. I will demonstrate my power so that all the world will know that I am God. And I will deliver my own because of who they are and who I am to them. He told them, thus you shall eat it. And this is the Passover in Exodus 12 with a belt on your waist your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Paul mentioned Jehoshaphat on Sunday. We love that story. You've got to love that story. right? But he said, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. What a place to be. What a place for you and I to be where we learn that God is God and He is everything He said He is and we can stand as His children and see His salvation. We're not working at it. We're not struggling to earn it but we trust him as who he is and what he said he would do. 
So if you would, turn to 2 Kings 18. Paul also touched on this Sunday, and I thought you cannot preach my message, Paul. Second Kings 18, Hezekiah and Sennacherib. I just want to glean a few things out of this. I don't want to bring out every point there is, but I want us to look at a few things in light of the idea of God's people who can be still and know that he is God. But Hezekiah and Sennacherib in Second Kings 18... Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done, not his father Ahaz. He removed the high places. He broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neshutan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor would or nor who would were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but he kept his commandments which the Lord God had commanded him. Good king. Good king means... Good king means right ways. Good king means doing all the right things. A reform happened in Israel, in Judah, right? He went through the land and he got rid of all these false things. He cut down all the things that his father had set up. All these corrupt things. But it, the scripture says that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. There was none like him among all the kings of Judah. But in verse 7, it says that the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Uh-oh. King of Assyria. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria would have had through his father who made a, basically an agreement with the king of Assyria or Assyria as a nation and said, listen, I'm going to serve you. You're my father and I'll serve you because I need help against Syria. And I'm going to pay you tribute and I'm going to give you taxes and I'm going to basically be your servant. And that's what all of Judah was doing to this point. They became Servants, vassals, they paid tribute to the mighty king of Assyria, the Assyrians. If you know anything about the Assyrians, and I did enough reading to go, you have got to be kidding. Because I'll read, I'll, we'll go mention a few things of how they were. Because you know what? If they came knocking on this door, you'd be afraid too, if you knew anything about them. But he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he refused to pay tribute to the Assyrian king. So he's doing all the right things, and he's saying, you know what? This tribute, this is really a way of saying that I am your servant. 
the Assyrians would come into a land or a nation and they would intimidate the nations, the cities, or they would destroy them. And they would make you if, you, if you surrender, fine. You swear an oath by the name of our God and you're going to pay tribute for the rest of your life. And it was no small thing. This wasn't some little tax. This was major. But you know what? You get to keep your little plot of ground so that you can keep farming it for me. Wow, what a deal. Not much of a deal, is it? But for some, it was better than dying. They'd rather make an agreement with the mighty nation of Assyria than suffer the consequences. But what does Hezekiah do? I'm following the Lord. I'm going to do the right thing. We are no longer going to be his servant. And he refused to pay the tribute. Now, I'll tell you, when the, king of, uh, when the Assyrian leadership and the king finds out that you're not paying tribute anymore, guess what happens? They send a couple of nice boys over to collect it. No, they don't. They don't send a group of thugs either. They send a war machine. And they go to collect it, either with your life or you're going to pay it. It was no small deal when the Assyrians came into a land. So in verse 13, he says, And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he did what? He took them. And then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah, most don't know why he's saying he did wrong. I couldn't find anyone that had a good enough answer for me. But after paying tribute for all them years and then realizing now, you know what, it's easy to say we're the mighty people of God and we're going to refuse to pay tribute to that Assyrian king. It's another thing when the army begins to march into your life, into your territory, isn't it? It's a big deal when the Assyrians come to visit you. The Assyrians had a war machine that was fierce. It was brutal. But he's attempting to avoid the taking of the city by Assyria, isn't he? And he pays a high price, $1.5 million. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to fool with Assyria. Let me just give them what they ask, and they'll go away. Ha! Give the devil what he asks and see if he goes away. He's not going anywhere, is he? He's not going anywhere. You make a concession to ease your life in some way because the distress is so great. What can I get? What do I need? It may go away for what? A day, a two, a year, a three months, whatever. 
It's not going away permanently, is it? Not if you're going to make concession as Hezekiah did, who made all kinds of preparations for this. It says that he fortified cities. He made shields and swords and he was building up. He rebuilt the walls of the city of David. He put everything back the way it should be. And yet, we do the same thing. We put everything in order and we're making this great confession. And then the king shows up and says, hey, you're not giving me anything. There's no concessions being made to me. Give me. Or else. What do you do? What do you do? I think Hezekiah was a little fearful when he saw this massive war machine coming. It had a reputation that was beyond what we would think of as far as men of war. I mean, we can read about things in times past, and they still happen today. We just don't read about what happens in war. But the Assyrian army was a real threat, wasn't it? It was a real threat. This wasn't some, oh, here comes a, you know, a, a group of hoodlums that the king of Assyria sent, and we'll just brush them off. We're talking about an army that knew how to use psychological warfare, an army that would lay siege to a city. And if you surrendered, fine, you became our servants. If you didn't, we'd kill you. We'd pillage your town. We'd burn your city. It says that they would take dead leaders, strip them, and impale them on poles, and take them to the next city and go, here's what's going to happen to you. They would pile up dead bodies outside of the city that they're trying to intimidate. They'd blind people. They'd dismember people. They'd flay people. They'd skin them alive. They'd burn them. They'd dismember them. They'd cut their arms and legs off. They weren't nice people. You tell me that doesn't have a psychological effect on people. You see that army coming in force knowing that unless you surrender, this is what you face. That's why he took all the cities in the area. It was over 40 fortified cities in Judah. He went through the whole land, one after another, and took them all. Now Hezekiah is what? One city, Jerusalem, the city of David. And here he is, facing one of the most brutal, fierce, intimidating forces on the planet of his day. You can't tell me there isn't some fear. They knew how to use intimidation, psychological warfare, and the devil knows how to use it today. He loves to spread, to spread spiritual propaganda. His job is to intimidate you, isn't it? To speak things to you and remind you of the 40 cities that have already fallen to the 40 failures you had already. Remember, you took a stand. You were all about trusting God. 
And when it came time to really face the intimidator. So these 40 cities, you don't think Hezekiah, when he sends his delegation, or uh, when uh, Sennacherib sends his delegation to Hezekiah, he's not reminding him, listen, I've already taken all the cities around you. All the nations around you I, I have. Look at those fortified cities that have fallen. And the devil is a master at pointing at failure. And he wants to remind you and I of your failures and tell you, you know, remember the last 40 times you stood against me and I intimidated you and you crumbled? What makes you think today is different? Well, today can be different. Today can be totally different if we could learn to be still and know that He is God. But He refuses to pay the tribute to the king of Assyria. But He pays eventually a concession. And He gives them all the money out of the house of the Lord and all of his out of his treasury and he undoes all the work he did in rebuilding the temple by what? Stripping the gold off the doors. Hezekiah was a man, wasn't he? He was a man just like us. You know, Second Chronicles 32 says about Hezekiah, he strengthened himself. He built up all the wall that was broken he raised it to the towers and built another wall outside. He also repaired the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shield in abundance. He was prepared. He was prepared. He knew that by refusing to pay that tribute, trouble was coming his way. But he was preparing, wasn't he? And yet you still see him paying tribute. So verse 19, what do we have then? The Assyrian threat. The Assyrian threat. In verse 19, it says, Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rab, Rabsarsaris, and the Rabshaketh from Lachish, which was the last, one of the last cities they were destroying southwest of Jerusalem, with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct, from the upper pool, which was on the highway, to the fuller's field. That's not verse 19. <laughs> I said 17. No, I said 19. 19. Then the Rab, Rab Shecheth said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? What a challenge. What a challenge to everybody in here. The enemy shows up, intimidates you with everything he can because it's words right now, isn't it? These are just words. He's saying that all these cities have been destroyed, but he's trying to intimidate. Who do you think you, what are you trusting in? He's asking Hezekiah, what are you trusting in? Look, all these cities around you are done. Where's your confidence? He 
says, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is he not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah had taken down or taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? First of all, Egypt was going to be no problem for the Assyrian army. It was never even going to help Hezekiah as he hoped. But he's asking a question, right? You're putting your trust in your military? Is that what you're putting your trust in? You talk big, you got that mighty warrior thing going and all them shields and armor. Well, how about you're going to trust in the Lord? Well, I thought Hezekiah tore down all them altars. He's made it awful narrow for you people now, hasn't he? He's requiring you to come to Jerusalem now? What about all them altars and high places? I mean, this, this is the delegation from the Assyrian king saying this. He's trying to do what? Get in their minds. Yeah. Hezekiah's made it awful narrow. He took away all these little substitutes that we had. He's now telling us this is where we worship the Lord. So in verse 23, I'm sorry, 20, 26, they're speaking to the to the delegation that came out from Hezekiah and they're outside and, and they're talking. And the people from Hezekiah's group tell this group from King uh, Sennacherib, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it and do not speak to us and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So there they are outside the wall. Shh, quiet this down. We don't want the people to also hear all this propaganda. You know, we're listening to you, but speak to us in a language we understand, but please don't speak so that everyone in the city can hear what you're saying. Right? They're trying to get them to... Because they understand the power of propaganda and words and intimidation. So, verse 28 says, And the Rabshaketh, Shabrak, Rab... Shek stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. Now all the people can hear this and spoke saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the Assyrian, king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me. And every one of you shall eat of his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you shall drink waters from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king 
of Assyria. Why are you listening to Hezekiah, people? Why would you listen to this man who's telling you our God is our fortress? He's the one who will deliver us from the mighty Assyrian war machine. Listen, I'm already telling you everybody else has been defeated. Why are you listening to this one last man of reason and trust and faith? Why? Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Be still and know that I am God. These other gods in the other lands, are they God? They're not God. So he wants us to learn to be still. What's Hezekiah's response? Chapter 19. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, The day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. Sackcloth. First thing Hezekiah does when he hears all this is humble himself, right? Because he knows, as Isaiah will prophesy in 57, Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Who does he dwell with? Those who are of a contrite spirit and a humble heart. He's not just God of the heavens and abides up there. He's abiding with us as we come before him in humility. But he sends his servants. He wants to hear what the Lord has to say regarding this, doesn't he? Go to Isaiah. That's where he, that's where he sends them, not you. I'm, that's where he sent his servants. <laughs> I'm sorry. He sends his servant to the prophet Isaiah because he wants to have a word from the Lord. So the servants in verse 5, so the servants of King Hezekiah come to Isaiah, and Isaiah says to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Whenever we hear something that is contrary to the truth that God has given us, should we ever give it an ear? Because this is the devil, isn't it? Let me, let me plant all these seeds of doubt. Let me plant all these seeds of fear. Let me talk your language until you begin to think, you know what? All them other cities have failed. You know, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe the king of Assyria is right. I mean, look, we can see the evidence. He says, don't give it an ear. Do not listen. That's how we cast down imaginations and arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
So Sennacherib sends again his messengers in verse 9. The last half he says, So again he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Now who is who, who is not to be trusted now? First it was the king, it was the leader. Now who are we not trusting? God. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. In verse 11, look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria had done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and you shall be, and you shall be delivered. Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Zepheth, and the people of Eden who are in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Seraphim, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. Now here we got something in writing. Here the messengers are coming, and we're going to write this all down. We're going to give it to Hezekiah. You're going to read this. You big king in your little palace somewhere. No, you're going to read this. So he does read it. He receives the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he reads it. And Hezekiah did what? Went to the house of the Lord. And I love this. He spreads it out before him. He spreads it out before him. Now, what is he spreading out before him? Look what they've written. Look what they're saying about us, but look what they're saying about you. I'm bringing this, this blasphemy before God himself now. This isn't me defending myself. This isn't Hezekiah defending himself. This is now, look what they're saying, Lord, against you. When I see that, it kind of, kind of came to mind. I'm kind of thinking, you know, when, when the enemy blasphemes God or when he challenges God and his word, and you go before him and you spread it out and you go, here's what I'm being told. Here's what the enemy's saying about you. And all I could picture was somebody like myself as a little kid, somebody speaking bad about my dad and go, you wait till I go tell my daddy. And expect him to come out and give him a whooping. Because you're speaking bad about my daddy. You're speaking blasphemy against my God. You're speaking corruption against what he's promised. I'm going to lay it all out before him because you know what? He's going to deal with you far more harshly than I will. But they've lost their strength, it says. They have no strength to deliver themselves. The children are ready to give birth, but there's no way they have the strength in their own might to deliver themselves. They're the last city remaining. Here they are with Hezekiah coming to totally wipe them out. So he reads the letter. He spreads it out before the Lord. And he prays. Verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. All, and of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Here's Hezekiah's declaration to what's been written. 
the great king of Assyria who thinks he's on an equal level with God? Isaiah prays. He lays it all out and he says, you know what? No. Lord, I'm praying to you about this man who's blaspheming and threatening us. You are God. And you are God alone. Is that how we can be still and know that he is God in the midst of threatening? Is to know that he is the sovereign one. He is the one that rules over all his creation. He goes on in verse 16, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to nations and lands. And he goes on and talks about they didn't have any gods. But we have God. He's blaspheming you, God. Now I'm going to stand and see what you're going to do for us and for yourself. Isn't it nice, though, to think that when things come against us, we can go before the Lord and go, here's what I'm hearing, here's what's being told me, but you're God, and you're God alone. And these things now really have no weight any longer. And we learn to be still. So Hezekiah is appealing to God's character and his reputation. Can we do that? I mean, when we're attacked, when we're distressed, when the enemy's trying to take from us, can we appeal to what has been done for us at the cross? Can God defend himself? Can God defend you? He sure can. So here's the word of the Lord through Isaiah the prophet to the arrogant king of Assyria. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the only perspective that matters. We've got Sennacherib and the king of Assyria laying out his boast and his threats. You're going down, Hezekiah. It's over. I've already destroyed all the cities around you. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? when you've seen failings in your own life and maybe what appears to be failings in others. Who do you think you are? We could ask ourselves that. Who do we think we are? But we also have Hezekiah's response and his prayer. So then in verse 20, this is the word of the Lord through Isaiah. And this is how God sees things. Then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back, whom you have reproached and blasphemed. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Now, I've got a daughter, and I'm a father. If you come to do harm to my daughter, I'm going to be a big, bad daddy. 
Because that's what Assyria wants to do, isn't it? He wants to molest God's people. The Assyrians want to destroy everything about God's chosen. But what's God saying? My daughter, my virgin daughter, you mess with her, you mess with me. And you know what? Because I'm coming to her defense, and because, as we'll see in a minute, you're going to tuck your tail between your legs and go home, she's going to laugh you to scorn. She's going to go, my daddy took care of you. You came to molest me. You came to defile me. No. Because I am her fortress and deliverer, she can laugh at your threats. Verse 23, Isaiah goes on to say, the Lord through Isaiah, By your messengers you have approached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Who's saying all that? The king of Assyria is making this grand boast that I did all these things. I, I, I. Isaiah 10, speaking of Assyria. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. Who's behind this? Who's controlling this? Is it the king of Assyria? Is he equal with God? Does he have the same ability to do everything that God's going to do? No. Verse 27. But I know, and this is God speaking to the king of Assyria, but I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and will turn you back by the way which you came. Wow. Can God do that? Really? He can take a mighty force like Assyria and put a hook in his nose like an ox or something in his lip, a bit or a bridle or whatever, and drag him right back where he came from. Can he do the same for us when we fight our enemies? Or do we just see it as... Too much. Are we being still and seeing and knowing that He is God? In verse 20, you know, it did say, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. God hears our cries, He hears our prayers. He is our fortress, He is our deliverer, He is our protector. So when you threaten my people, you threaten me. You seek to do harm to my own, and you will have me to deal with. 
Can we be still and know that he is God? Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, and by the, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into the city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Who's going to defend the city? God's going to defend the city. Why? For whose sake? His own. To me, there's comfort in knowing that God does things for his name's sake. He's doing it for his glory. Your deliverance, your healing, your salvation, your victory over the devil is for his name's sake that he may be glorified, that he takes pitiful people like you and I and does his work in us. He gets glorified. We don't get more religious and impress the people around us. It's him who does the work, and he does it for his name's sake. He doesn't save you and I to leave us alone so we just wander off and get lost. He saves us for his name's sake, and he does a work in us for his glory. And knowing that, I can learn to be still and know that he is God and that he will defend me, that he will deliver me for his sake, for his glory. He told Pharaoh, he said, but indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. The greater... The greater the threat, the greater the deliverance, isn't it? We can be saved all day long from, uh, you know, a hangnail or you stubbed your toe. That's great. We like that. But the greater the threat, the more oppressive the enemy gets, the greater his power becomes to deliver us. And the greater he is glorified. He's glorified when he defends his own. He's glorified when we receive from him and he becomes our deliverer, our fortress, our strength. He is showing his self powerful on our behalf for his glory. In relation to Pharaoh in Romans 9, we see what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand. We are his vessels of mercy that he is going to make his power known through. I don't care what you and I are going through tonight, what we're going to go through tomorrow what distress we're facing, what turmoil will erupt tomorrow in the world. We need to know that we can be still and know Him.
as the one who is our fortress, who is sovereign over all his creation, who defends his own, and he does it for his namesake. We should be able to trust him just with those words. One last verse in 1 Samuel 12, 22. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. He's called us all out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he is for us and not against us. And when we learn at times when things are overwhelming to be still and know that he is God, he is then able to show himself mighty on our behalf. And we're just standing there. Who gets the glory when we just stand in trust and in quiet confidence? Who's getting glorified? You? No, all you're doing is, I'm being still. And I know who God is. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for being our fortress, our strength. We thank you that we abide under the, your shadow. We thank you that you are our protector, our preserver. And Lord, I pray that we would all learn when necessary to be still and know that you are God. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us for your glory and that you will defend us. You will bring us to where we need to be. We thank you that you are all these things to us, not because we deserve it, but because you love us and that you've called us and that you are doing a work in us. Father, we ask that you would bless each one of us here tonight, Lord, and you'd uh, just cause your word to take root in our hearts, that would, we would learn to better trust you, that we would learn to be quiet before you, that we would remember to acknowledge you as the sovereign God of, over all your creation and the defender of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.